Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. Thank you for joining us again on Changing Conversations. And we feel very fortunate tonight to reconnect with one of the leading global experts in systems change in education, Michael Fullen. And Michael, we spoke to you back in the middle of last year. Um, a lot has happened since then, um, but, but firstly and, and importantly, how have you been? How are you? Good, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm inside like most of us and have been. So it's uh, one way it's been a good change because I haven't been traveling every two or three days as I was before. So that, yeah. that's been good, uh, but uh, physically, mentally, it's fine. But I'm ready to get going out of the real world again whenever we can. Absolutely, I'm sure everyone listening would agree with that. Now, last, last time, Michael, we had a really um, wide-ranging conversation covering various aspects of particularly the need for and the potential for change in, in education and wider systems. Um, and you'd signposted that prior to the pandemic, you know, and, and we did get through that conversation a sense of, of urgency. But um, in your most recent paper, the, the right drivers for whole system success, that sense of urgency for me is, is, has, has heightened. Is, is it fair to say that, that there's something about the here and now for you that is more urgent? I, yeah, I think it's heightened in reality, uh, objectively speaking, one could say, and subjectively for that matter. But it's also um, heightened in terms of uh, being able, at least for me, to grasp how to say it. And what, what has influenced in particular the evolution in your thinking um, over the past year, for example? You know, where, where you arrive, um, in, in my observation, my reading is that it seems, I hope you don't mind me saying it, even more dramatic a signal to us all that, that actually change is not only uh, desirable, but it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it, one could have been dramatic before I wrote this paper. That is, when I talked the last time, it, it, it was uh, conducive to being dramatic about, if that's <laughs> yeah. not a very facile way of saying it, but it, it was that, but there was something, um, I guess more emotional now, and more and more clear about the how to how to say what's wrong, and how to in a way that could lead to a pathway to action, big action. So uh, this what we're going to talk about. I'm going to consider to be the grand rationale that's accessible still, but yeah. complex to to act on this. Whereas before we could say deep problems, we should do this, we should, uh, but it seemed it seemed less connected less synergistic, uh, uh, yet like, yeah, it's, uh, that's right. But I think people were still not knowing where to think 
and how to how to go. So what I tried to and I and when I wrote this, I wrote it. It kind of created itself. So that's in that way, the time has been right because we've been working on it every which way. But when it comes together through the writing, and it's it's not like I I thought I knew what I was writing, then I wrote it. It's like you start writing it, and it creates itself because you're interacting with your ideas and the realities uh, on the ground. And as you know, from the last time, all of our work is grounded with practitioners. So I'm seeing this every day anyways. And to be able to then articulate it has been a great, um, I don't know, to me, a great breakthrough in my my feeling about it. And you're, and you're getting that message from practitioners that you're working with in recent months as, as we continue to find our way through this pandemic. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the practitioners and like all of us are reeling. So in, the, in one sense, it's uh, it's like the wild west right now because we're in the midst of, uh, of, the, of the pandemic, but people are uh, not able to concentrate on what to do about it, but they are seeing through this experience glimpses of new things and what could be done, new partnerships with parents, uh, work with technology differently. So they're see seeing that, but they're not having time to process it. And I wanted to write this paper the way I described it. If I could, if I could write and release it, just as hope was rising, is the way I would think about it. Then I could latch on to some action. Well, turns out hope isn't quite rising yet. Where I'm hope maybe a month behind, two months, three months. But it, it, it's it's that kind of connection I'm looking for when people are ready to do something after COVID, because they're they've got some pent up good ideas and their new ideas, then I think we can provide them with a framework for acting on that. And I remember, um, I remember having conversations in, in one of my previous roles with the, with the leadership team that I was a part of. I remember us having conversations about the, the wrong driver's paper. Um, and I was, I was surprised that was 10 years ago. It didn't seem that long ago that we were kind of talking about it and digging into it and thinking about how we could, how we could use that. So now we're here and you've just released the paper um, just uh, last week on the right drivers. And those drivers, you talk about that as the human paradigm. Can you, can you share a little bit about why, why it's a human paradigm, first of all? It's always for us, and even if you go back 10 years ago to the right drivers and the wrong drivers, the wrong drivers were really the, the dehumanized part. If you just look at them, the, 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 the fragmentation mm -hmm. and the individualism, the, the standardized test being a, 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 you know, applied to people rather than, than co-developed. So those, were, uh, those were, were not feeling very uh, uh, kind of connected and human to most of us who were, and to teachers, and that's why it, they were wrong drivers. And then since the, in the last 10 years, people were finding attractive to the right drivers, which were, which was collaboration, as you recall, pedagogy, uh, system uh, or system change. Uh, then those, those were perking along and, and were happening uh, in some fashion. But I think the difference was it, to me is then and, and immediately after that first paper 10 years ago, people uh, rationally gravitated towards what I was saying, but the emotional depth was not there. Mm -hmm. And now because of, uh, because of the way in which the system, and we can talk about this, has deteriorated rapidly during those 10 years, even before COVID. And then the double whammy of getting COVID to put you really in the bad mood, mm 
then you really have a, an emotional kind of churn that could go either way that, you know, self-destruction or other destruction, or are we going to rise to the occasion? This is our last chance. And so the, the emotions are, are, are revved for this. And as, as you probably know about change, all good change is accompanied by not only good ideas, but, but strong emotions. Uh, anxiety is necessary for change. Too much anxiety uh, is dysfunctional, but you need real anxiety to say we better act. And I think you're right. I think there is, there is that emotion there at the moment. We're all feeling it. We all want that, that change. I, I worry slightly that people are, are tired or worn down or like drained by the process. How do we, how do we balance that? Do we need to, or will, will that change? Uh, well, the, the drained part is, uh, first of all, I don't know, because people have had such uh, depth of despair that you can't really predict this. But I think that they have, um, it, it depends what we do now. People, let's say people are down and, and suppressed. They don't want to stay that way if there's any way out. But we could make it worse. For example, uh, one of the big discussions is how do we make up for loss of learning? Yeah. And if you jump back into it and, and the politicians and others say we better have major uh, up focus on loss of learning and catch up and catch up within six months or 12 months, that will blow it out of the water negatively. But if you instead, as I'm recommending in the, in the right driver's paper, you focus on well-being and learning, what we call getting good at learning and good, getting good at life, which we're already working on. But yeah. so we've got a lot, of, uh, a lot of allies and a lot of detail about how to do that. If it's about well, well-being, I think we, we can see with humans that they can bounce back quickly if the focus is on well-being. Mm -hmm. If the focus is on additional pressure, put, it, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and get back to do it, then it will be adding insult to injury and will fall apart. But I think the, the, the advantage of the right drivers is that not only are they inspirational, they're emotionally uplifting. Yes, yes. And I felt that when I read the paper. Um, I felt a sense of excitement and let's do this as well as a, oh, let's not mess it up. <laughs> so definitely felt both sides of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we, um, that we had, I had a discussion with uh, some principals yesterday uh, in uh, Australia, Melbourne, and they had the same, uh, same reaction. One of them said, uh, oh, I was so uplifted, but then I felt a sense of anxiety at the same time. I just like, what am I going to do? I just, I, I'm excited, I, but I don't, I don't know where it's heading. So I, and I think, uh, you know, if we think a little bit more about, uh, about the, uh, the paper, Mm -hmm. uh, the urgency has increased, you know, we can, I, I, I have a little video that goes with the paper, a nine minute video, where I say the, the one of the, the seven reasons that are really causing us to want to, uh, and needing to act, have to do with uh, a climate deterioration, uh, any growing inequality, plummeting social trust, and, um, and also uh, staggering mental health is, I guess, what I call it for, for all ages. So we've got that negative uh, set. We've got COVID, which is still negative, uh, but then we've got um, what I'm calling a pent up desire to do something. And it, I think the desire to do something 
I would say on the average has not been um, worsened by COVID, it's mm -hmm. been increased. The yeah. desire to do something has been increased by the very happening of COVID to us. So I think that's the, the silver lining or more that comes out of that. And, what, and I, so I think people are poised to do something that mm -hmm. they will uh, kind of rise to the occasion when others are doing it and they see a new way, all of that. So I think that can be, uh, that, can get, that can get started. Uh, I, I would also want to say that in the paper, it is meant to be inspiring and people say it is, it's uplifting, but I, did, I deliberately did not put any implementation plans in it. And I did that on purpose, as I said, because uh, I, I didn't want, it was just too big. It, uh, it, it, it requires many discussions and many people who want to do it to get on board. And that is our strategy now is to mobilize. It's almost like uh, it's, it's, uh, it's like crowd, crowdsourcing implementation, I guess I'll say, but in, but in collaboration groups in the ways the drivers are. And uh, that's what we want to get to. So it's, it doesn't have those details of, uh, of implementation, but this is working then the way I expected and wanted it to happen, which is people say, we want to work on those details now. Yeah. Let's get going. And yeah. that's then we can actually do something and we will do something to not only support implementation, but with a variety of people to develop implementation guideline guides or actions or examples, all of those things uh, to act, act uh, during implementation, make the concepts really come additionally alive. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about the four drivers. What, what are they? Uh, well, the, dri the drivers, uh, the positive drivers in this sense, and they, in one sense, they have to be uh, compared to, the, to their, to their uh, negative partner, I guess we, can, we could say. But if I, if I just think and talk about the four right drivers, and they have to interact with each other. I don't consider anyone more important than the other. If you leave one out, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, well-being and learning uh, together, mm -hmm. uh, I'll come back to that. Social intelligence is mm -hmm. the second one. Equality investments is the third. And systemness, which is um, an awkward word, but it means the sense that people have that they're part of a system and they want to improve it. It's not the academic systemic change. It's inside your head. Uh, we better act and we better act uh, together. But you have to compare those uh, to their to their counterparts, and uh, and that's where it gets uh, more complicated. But on the well-being, learning, we in our deep learning work, as I, we talked the last time, we were already heading in that way. Uh, and that deep learning, and I, I just just maybe a bit of a, a sidebar here, uh, deep learning and, and well-being, uh, well-being had started originally, I think, in the in our attention at least, as ill-being. There's so much this 10, 15 years ago. And then as you, you still have to deal with that, but pretty soon you realize, well, ill-being, well, isn't well-being the, the kind of uh, nirvana that we should be talking about? And that with the developments in neuroscience and others, we have a neuroscientist on our team, Dr. Jean Clinton, who loves the work because she can say, I was dealing only with the negative outcome and pulling people out of the river when they're dry, when they're drowning. Now with you, we can do something about it before that so that the well-being develops. So in the other breakthrough with us because of neuroscience is the way that well-being uh, links with learning. Well-being is learning. Mm -hmm. you, get, uh, you get developed that. 
So I think uh, we have some very strong things to say about that. Uh, I, I keep, I, I keep temp being tempted to be diverted every time I will talk about one of these because we have just been also working with uh, actually the group of state commissioners in the, in the US, there's fifth, one per state at the top and they wanted to talk about social emotional learning and where it fits. We had a great discussion because our view is obviously it's important social emotional learning but the danger is it gets bolted on to an overloaded curriculum. We better do, it's Friday afternoon, we better do social emotional learning or however they do that. And, and we know that any change has to be, uh, I'll say anchored in a unified model. And what I presented, I think in the four drivers is a unified model that helps us to deal with well-being and learning and make that a very strong primary driver almost. And because it's the essence of the human being and then to surround that driver with uh, the, the other three. And the way I think of this, uh, and I didn't use these words in the report, is I think now the action is helping the right drivers rise mm -hmm. and dealing with the wrong drivers to dampen them, not eliminate them, but to dampen them. They had too much prominence at the expense of the right drivers. Let's reverse that prominence, have the right drivers prominent, the, the, not the wrong drivers, uh, um, you know, kind of integrated better, which we have why ideas about how to do that. So I like the kind of chemistry of this mm -hmm. as it evolves now. So that's the, the, that's the first driver. And you've given them nicknames. You talked about essence. What? Yeah, yeah. They'd, I'd had some fun with that and, and, and partly, uh, partly it's playful, but I've noticed on the, uh, on the tweets that a lot of people are mentioning the nicknames yeah. Uh, along because it is really I think uh, in a learning sense it, it applies to you uh, to, to better so that the uh, I think the well the well-being and the kind of um, way in which we think of these is really um, helpful and uh, with well-being I've called it essence yeah right and the uh, academic obsession, obsession I've, I called it selfishness, but a better word probably is self-centered. Mm -hmm. So the academic obsession, like any obsession, is self-centered. And it's dysfunctional for, it, it turns out, as you know in the paper, it's dysfunction, dysfunctional even for the successful mm -hmm. uh, because it's so, um, so over, overdone. It's, uh, and one of the researchers called it the wounded winners. Even if you do well, you get wounded mm -hmm. in that. So, so if you think then of the, uh, the essence uh, side of it versus the uh, self-centered, yeah. it's, 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 it's good to a point to be self-centered because you can look after and get some success. But mm -hmm. ultimately at the end of the day, it's dysfunctional for you as a person to live in this world in a self-centered way. Mm -hmm. It's dysfunctional for the world to have many self-centered people doing that. And that's what academic uh, obsession has been doing to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the link with, with well-being, and I love how you put it, that well-being is learning. And, and the idea of essence, um, because you link well-being, you detach it from what you've described as ill-being, and you link it with purpose and meaning, which is yeah. really deep. And, you know, some Aristotle gets a mention in there. Um, and, and that whole concept that to be, to learn the link with well-being means that actually we need to be developing, if we think about the school system, 
young people to have an awareness of themselves within the world and a concept of purpose and meaning. Yeah, and it really, uh, actually, I, it uncovers it in a way, and I just re really want to be make this so blatant when I say it this way. People didn't stop and think about whether academic subjects were intrinsically motivating. Uh, if you just ask that question, you know the answer almost by the time you get it out of your mouth, that, uh, that the primary motivator for, for, for most students to get excited about schooling is not academic subjects. The primary motive, uh, motivator, you've been, you mentioned it, is purpose, well-being, um, my connection to the world, my, be, my ability to be able to do something. All of that purpose and meaning is probably, if we go back, is at the heart of education in the first place or a learning. Deeply, deeply in our philosophical backgrounds, yeah. we can find that uh, essence and we've lost it to academic narrowness. Mm -hmm. And so this is why it's essence. You return to it. And then it and then students are incredibly motivated once it's purpose and meaning, belongingness, connectedness, and doing something worthwhile. The motivation just goes sky high and and uh, and that that's where the academic learning goes up at the same time. Mm -hmm. And there's something quite expansive about each of the nicknames. So you've got social intelligence, which is limit limitless. Um, equality investments, which is dignity and system as, as wholeness. So there's that sense of kind of expansiveness. Yeah, that's the part of the emotionality of it. Mm -hmm. That, um, and this uh, change, uh, any change worth its salt is always got the deep emotional component to it. We bad changes as well sometimes, but the, uh, so this, this is, uh, that's why the good, the right drivers can be uplifting. Because if you just look at those, uh, you know, limitless for social intelligence, well, we have we haven't nearly uh, uh, come to being good enough in terms of how we can collaborate and get things done. We know what that what it looks like when it works, but we we're we're low down on the on the evolution of being able to do that well. And if you take that social intelligence, say, build that up, and as I said, we've uh, overestimated what machines can do, and we've underestimated what humans can do. And if we, if you, uh, if you just take that as a, as an inspiration, then people want, people want to be connected and collaboration. We're just, I have to say, even though I, I can think of examples of collaborative schools 40 years ago, we are still just getting started on what collaboration is. And it's not an automatically good. You have to have the social intelligence quality of what it means to get together, to do things well and to, and to be effective at it. So, it really is a quality, uh, quality thing. Mm -hmm. How can we get better at that? Well, you can. Um, it's a partly, uh, I guess I'll say, uh, circular argument to start with because in our work with the global competencies, collaboration is a fundamental part of what the learning essence is. So mm -hmm. if you imagine that playing itself out you'll get more people go up, students and others who eventually graduate, who will be strong in collaboration and, and uh, among other things. So they will, uh, they, will, they will increase the level of quality collaboration in, in the planet, just because that's, that's, that is our ultimate goal is to use education as a uh, mechanism for changing society, not being on the receiving end of a bad society. 
So I think that's one. But the second second is uh, uh, that you get good at collaboration by being a, be, being well led by people. Uh, this is part of our leadership. Is good leaders are leaders who, uh, by the time they finish their tenure, it's not just what they've accomplished in a bottom line sense. It's it's how many good people they've left behind and can go even further. Other leaders. So they're they're when they develop teams, they get more done in the short run. But they're really developing the leg, their own legacy in a better way because those team members have leaders who will upon, build upon leadership upon leadership around collaboration. And so there's now some good, really good work I think, having to do with uh, better ways of getting at collaboration. One of my favorite new things that we have is called connected autonomy. Mm -hmm. which allows people to uh, go into collaboration, but to realize I've got my autonomy at the same time. I'm an independent, but I'm, I have to be together. And it really is an appealing concept. I think that's right. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some other good work on, um, on more sophisticated forms of collaboration where now the collaboration is going outside the school where networks of schools are collaborating, mm -hmm. where schools are, um, are connecting upward to the system. In fact, Scotland is a, is a very good example of, uh, I just did a foreword for a book that had just studied, been studying the various networks. They've got all kinds of uh, networks that are lateral, vertical, even for a small system. Uh, it's got, it's really permeated with, with, uh, with network uh, effectiveness. So I think it remains to be seen how, how whether that leads to good co coherence, but there's no doubt there's a massive increase in participation of the of those in education side and on the uh, the uh, you know the social net, social support side to want to work together community leaders and that that's just the, the the people are not saying we shouldn't do this people mm -hmm. are saying how do we do it better we want more we want to do more for ourselves so that's that that's out there and it's out there in spades in, in Scotland yeah so just because you've mentioned Scotland and the fact that we do we do have that, what what else could we do? How do we take that to the next level? How do we really utilize that in the context of the paper that and the and the four right drivers? Well, part of the paper is an invitation for various people to act and sometimes we're in partnership with it and that would be good. So I think uh, in the Scotland case, uh, they have, uh, Develop this major uh, commitment to uh, vertical and lateral leadership, and there, uh, and there, there are lots of people who want to do it or are doing it. But I think very soon it's going to be uh, the key question is going to be: Is it really working? Are we getting really a strong movement forward or not? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, this paper will, I, I hope, be a guidance for good worrying. That is, what are we missing here? Uh, I know well-being is part of it. Uh, are there too many um, too many networks that we're getting confused because it's all overlapping and uh, everybody's working on similar agendas? So I think it should lead, in the case of Scotland, uh, to greater, um, I guess, uh, focus and settling down and coherence as we recommend. And you can look at the four drivers and the, the, the right drivers and you can... Uh, take each one and say, how are we doing on this? Uh, and go to each one and what do we have to do to change that? Because most of the work in the, the Scotland networking has been started only five years ago, four years ago. So it's still not clear, I think, even to the people that are in the networks, 
is it really going to be worthwhile? They believe it is, but they don't know the answer to that. So this will provide further impetus to try to make it worthwhile. And in terms of collaboration, you talk about collective uh, action required for positive change. Now you actually, there's a, there's a section where you talk about um, young people, potentially those who the system works for least as having, you know, a, a real potential, um, an emotional experience and a connection to what is wrong. So I was fascinated by that. And you, and you spoke about emotion and new dignity. What, so what did you mean by the new dignity? Well, let's take the lead up to that for a moment that, um, and I start into it in a, a bit of an odd way. Uh, if I'm um, myself uh, out in the world and facing problems or facing complexity in the world, I would rather have as my per person beside me, someone who had come through a lot of knocks in life and had survived and, you know, and being a good functioning adult compared yeah. to someone who smoothly went through school and got good grades. Uh, if you like, if you that, I'm not really being a negative about that as it sounds, oh, no, but if you sense. think of the, the someone who's had lots of problems and solved them and that they're a much better character in the best sense of that word than, and, and more effective. They know how to deal with anxiety, know how to deal with problems and that. So, so this is, uh, I think this is a side that really, uh, that's one thing. The second thing, we know that the students who, uh, who don't fit well immediately into academic, and this is the academic obsession, um, harmfulness, is they get, they get lower and lower, they end up doing worksheets and they get spiraled down and they drop out, are always on the edge of dropping out. So they have a very poor start, not only to education, but to life. And, and, and they don't have a chance because it's their world and the academic obsession world is so far apart. But we have noticed that when you actually work with, with students who on problem solving and, and those issues of, uh, of um, the global competencies, meaning of life, purpose, belongingness, that, and this is, again goes back to our uh, cognitive scientists and neuroscientists, that they, those students that were previously disaffected can be night and day different five months later if they have a different learning experience. And uh, which they have, if you focus on well-being and learning, and not on academic obsession. So we we literally they get rescued from a downward spiral into its opposite. And I think it, you know, like we say, deep learning is good for all students, but it's especially good for students who are disaffected in the first place. So if we take dignity um, and essence and those things, I, I mean, this you get at it through, and it's depressing actually. Uh, to read, uh, and I, this is, was my first serious entry into looking at uh, uh, the, the economics of, uh, of, of how societies have evolved in the last 40 or 50 years. And fortunately, there's been um, about, starting about four years ago, uh, a, a group of three or four women economists who have written brilliant books, uh, not only documenting how the financial, how the system is rigged financially, and now I'm talking, where the rich get richer and the poor have not got, and it's, it's really, uh, there's a, um, a very interesting book I discovered just before I w wrote this uh, by a sociologist at Harvard named Robert Putman, Putman, Putnam. He had written a book about many years ago when I was a young sociologist, I remember it, called Bowling Alone, where he said there was not enough community. But in this one, he and his co-author, 
uh, studied uh, with using um, good data by they're putting together through memes of a kind of combination and culling that. But anyway, the book is called Upswing. And it says America, because we're focusing on the US, has gone through periods of I-ness and we-ness. So there, there a whole, whole bunch of, uh, you know, a number of years of, uh, of just self-centered. And then you really get kind of a sense of outreach and development and great things going on. This was the, happened in the 20s. It happened just after the Second World War for 20 years. Uh, and now they're deep into the I-ness problem, let's say this narrowed part. And they have on social trust, let's take that as an indicator. Uh, the social trust has plummeted from about 65% to 30%. And as uh, on surveys, as people perceive that in the US. So this is a long way around to dignity, but what's happened here and what's happened first on the financial basis is somehow, I mean, I know how, but I don't wanna take a whole bunch of time to explain it. But some, but around the late 70s, uh, there there was a, a shift where uh, where there was built into the system, and it was done somewhat on purpose by individuals, but it was allowed to be done by 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 those in charge of society, politicians and others, where the profits for the GDP, which stayed steady on. 90% of the profits were going to, to owners and shareholders and hardly any to, uh, to, the, to labor or the, the workers. So you got then a start, this is literally 1978 and the last 45 years now, it's been continuous uh, wide, wide range uh, where the, the middle class got driven down towards the poor, financially speaking, and, uh, and the upper class got, or the, uh, the, the capitalist got obscenely rich. And so the, that was, uh, that's really well documented in the paper. And then you see, and I think the overwhelming or, or the single best way of thinking about this is dignity. And there's been, everybody intuitively can feel about dignity. And if you're, if you're uh, someone who uh, is constantly uh, starting preps and having experiences and always being put down and not having a chance and, and what's so blatant here too, is that social mobility, which is doing better than your parents in some ways, it uh, on the average, it almost went to zero on the average uh, around 1980. And it's been like that for 40 years. So you've, you get, uh, and this is why you get Donald Trump uh, and uh, the, the consequences of that. And you can, uh, there's several good books on this now, but the single thing that will make people into the worst versions of themselves is lack of dignity that they feel. If they don't feel dignity, self-worth, they're absolutely rock bottom as humans. And this is why education and the four, four drivers should be in that uh, work. I mean, uh, the high, higher dignity is obviously well-being as well. So, but it can be rooted in the uh, education or the financial frameworks that have made it, that have rigged the system again. And if you look at the four wrong drivers, almost all of them are rigging the system. I'm just thinking of this now. Academic obsession rigs the system for those who already have wealth. Uh, not, only high, not only do they make more money income, but they have more wealth accumulated. So their kids are more favored in the, and the way that they, they develop that. Uh, uh, machine intelligence are, is dominated. It's a male world. I mean, look at who are the billionaires that have de derived from that. They're almost all males. Who uh, you can say about uh, 
machines that they're fantastic, they can do a lot, but they're basically, and the, uh, the, the nickname I gave it was careless. That is, that, not that they're careless, but they, they care, a machine care less because by definition it's amoral, but it's, it's fueled by the values and, the, and the, I guess I'll say the, uh, uh, it's fueled, one of the authors called it techno-chauvinistic. It's fueled by a male kind of mentality of growth is good and the more powerful machine, the better, the better. It's not tied into uh, the learning part that I've uh, been described. And then austerity, again, um, the money itself under, under keeps chipping away. At, it's almost impossible to act it. So you, you have these four drivers, the wrong drivers, reinforcing across each other, inevitably a system that gets stuck more and more into uh, destruction. And what I proposed is not one by one, but think of all four as destructive and think of the other four as constructive developmental. And then when you see the interactive effect of two or more of those drivers working in, in, in the positive direction, uh, change can happen fast. So I'm, I think the acceleration of change is possible when the right combination, the right chemistry happens. Well, an interesting lens through which to view that would be an example for you about what happened um, in Scotland last summer when the, the exams were cancelled. So the, the traditional way out of, uh, you know, you mentioned the academics and the emphasis on attainment. Uh, young people didn't sit exams and there was an outcry in Scotland when results were published because an algorithm had been used by the Qualifications Authority to get us to a position where we more or less had the same pattern of, of attainment as we'd had in previous years. And those that lost out most were young people from the poorer backgrounds. Now there mm. was, you know, th there then was that collective outcry from young people, you know, literally um, with placards on the street because that sense of dignity that their postcode had played a part in identifying how they mm. had been recognised. Um, and at the moment, that, that that is just one thing that has stemmed a discussion in Scotland. Um, well, you can, you can guarantee that that wrongdoing was done by machine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was done it was mechanically, a, it was an algorithm. Care, yeah. carelessly. And to the credit of the First Minister, uh, Nicholas Thurgeon, she took corrective action, and I think... That Absolutely. There's, there's strong elements of the uh, the right drivers in her her leadership. Well, we've learned from that, and that won't happen this year. Um, and potentially, we are having that discussion as practitioners and as system leaders about how we how we properly assess young people mm -hmm. um, in the twenty first century. Yeah, let me just on that point because I think to me it's the most complex one which is we're pretty convinced now that the standardized test and, and that whole apparatus is on balance quite negative. So we want a, a lot of us working on this, Andy Harkways, myself, many others, uh, want that to uh, be crushed and out of the way. And, uh, and then, the, but the legitimate question is what takes its place? Uh, what's, what is different? Part of the answer is greater continuous formative assessment so that this, you know, students begin to uh, develop in a, in a kind of de definable, measurable way over time because the system is doing that not only individual teachers, but groups of schools working together. 
And then, but eventually you come back to what is the form of summative assessment? And I, I don't have an answer to that, but I wanna give a point about it, which is some, there's two places I know where uh, we uh, or people are trying to develop the alternative. The alternative is some form of uh, qualitative assessment that uh, uh, port, whether it's portfolio or uh, a skill uh, framework or whatever, that is more than credentials in a micro sense and is more qualitatively has greater depth. And so I wanna bring that to you, your attention and others because, uh, because it's just starting. The one that I'm associated with, at least from a distance is uh, Professor Sandra Milligan at U University of M Melbourne, Melbourne University, who just launched her new phase of this a couple of nights ago, I was part of it. And it's called uh, New Metrics. <clears throat> and what she and her group have been doing is developing uh, um, uh, qualitative metrics to assess the, the basically the global competencies. And so wh whatever it is, but these are students who are able to then have that kind of focus. It goes with the pedagogy that we're talking about, the better learning uh, well-being and all of that. So they're, but they're able to assess it and they're doing it the right way. They're, uh, they're doing it in partnership with 37 schools that are co-developing the answer. They've already been working quite a bit on it. So I think that has a lot of promise and it's, it's it, the, the goal of that is to um, replace uh, summative exams, to replace the assessment system through examination system. Uh, it's not a, a subversive goal, it's a byproduct of doing it the other way. And what you wanna do is unseat that and we're doing the same with our deep learning. We are just starting. We've already know how to measure our six competencies. We know that they go together to make a better impact. And we're trying to figure out how to display the progress of that. And then the outcome as people, let's say, finish year five or year 12 or whatever, whatever it is. So the, this whole notion of assessing students more in relation to their learning development, but still in concrete ways is uh, is uh, is underway and there's a i guess i'll say almost a revolution afoot that those uh, quantitative exams we used to have that were so standardized especially in the us uk australia has it they will go the way of the dodo bird hmm. we think tell us a bit about um the fourth driver which is a meta driver you said you, this idea of systemness being um a meta driver what does, what does that mean and how can we begin to think about what we, what we need to do there? There's two, uh, two uh, dom dom uh, elements of it. Uh, one is it's a meta driver in the sense that uh, it, it would provide a good framework for, co for coordinating the work of the other three good right drivers. Mm -hmm. So that the relationships, you have to have a system thinking in order to uh, link uh, wellness and social intelligence and the investments that need to go the right right way. So uh, in that sense, it, it's, it's like that. But in another sense, and we started this, um, this line of thinking in uh, De The Devil is in the Details, the book I did last year, uh, we said that the system, everybody agrees has to be changed, but we get stuck then because you say, well, who should be leading system change? And most of people who have suffered by bad implementation say, we don't want the top to lead it. Mm -hmm. It's not going to, to work. So, uh, so uh, but, but now, and I just want to actually, 
one of my good colleagues is Peter Senge, who's been working on system, systemic change for ages. And he's just come back in to do some work in California where we're working. And uh, it, uh, I, I shifted from uh, systemic thinking to systemness mm -hmm. because I wanted the responsibility and the mindset of systemness be, to be within the individual. Mm -hmm. So systemness is, uh, is internal to the individual and it's an orientation that I, I know I'm doing something here, but I know it's part of a bigger system, even at my level, schools or, or whatever, LEAs, local authorities. Uh, but I also have to think about uh, my connection to the other two levels. I don't, I'm not responsible for running the place, but as Peter Zengi says, uh, uh, leadership is, uh, is, is not actually, system leadership does not mean that individuals at the top can change the system. The only way that uh, that leadership can work is if it's relational, mm -hmm. and therefore you have to to build that up. So, I think that uh, it's it's a more complex com. It's it's simpler to think of leaders at the top developing policy, and let's mm -hmm. get them to develop better policy. That's simpler, but it's by no means up to the task of changing systems. And so, it has to be thought about. And this, I think, even young kids have maybe especially young children have a better sense of wholeness sometimes than, than, than others do uh, that uh, in terms of how they look at the world. So I think there's some purchase here, but we first wanna get the point of, uh, of uh, people, whatever level they are at, they should think of systemness as they are the system and so is everybody else. So they've gotta be figure out their part of it. They're, they're, they're well advised to be more cohesive at their own level they're well advised to inter uh, have collaboration across levels, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and that and that these are I think the forms of a collaboration that are working. So I think we will see some uh, new developments there, and maybe even better language uh, than I've used. Systemness is not the right uh, concept, um, but again, these things are starting to percolate. I'm doing something in um, March second with uh, Wise, the the you know the uh, the Cutter Foundation's uh, main initiative of, of working on this. And they're, they're very interested in leadership and what's the evolution of leadership? What are the definitions we have? And the whole conference is built around that. And in one sense, I didn't talk specifically about leadership in this report very much, uh, although it's in systemness, but you could say, you could hand this report to those, uh, those people working on leadership and say, find the leadership here, find mm -hmm. leadership. Uh, sort of find leadership in the driver's challenge so that uh, that that's that really uh, so I, what I wanted what I want to spark here is not the, the recognition that leadership is the answer but a certain kind of leadership is the answer and that certain kind needs to see leadership uh, be evident at all three levels at different ages and to see leadership intersect and uh, I think uh, I think if we had enough leaders committed not to their self-centered goals of how, how, would, how do I do this, or even ahead of a school, it's not just my, the success of my school is not the, is not the end result. The success of the schools around me and me are the, are the end result, for example. So I think it will spark, and I know I, my, at the conference of the, on March 2nd, uh, we will be linking this kind of systemness and the leadership 
domain. That's the essence of that conference, at least mm -hmm. in productive ways. So I think it, the, lead, the framework is, has, is amenable to connectedness wherever you look. Yeah. yeah. It, it links back to the conversation and you mentioned it this evening uh, that when we spoke last, we spoke about the Scottish push towards an empowered system. And, and you urged us to think about empowerment more in terms of connected autonomy. And, and you do get through this most recent paper, um, a few mentions of you know, the word horizontal comes through. You know, that, that idea that, that we need to move away from these rigid hierarchies. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, you mentioned that you know, the paradigm shifts kind of gather their own momentum as such. So yeah, I, I mean, it's, some it's, people compare it to social movement. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it, it sounds a bit like that. Because the, uh, but I know sometimes social movements only end up replacing one system with another. That's just yeah. not even much better. But I think, yeah, I think the realization of, um, of people working on this is that, uh, you know, empowerment is a hierarchical statement and it's needed in a hierarchical totalitarian regime, but it's not, it's not gonna be the end results. You can't, you can't empower part of the system. It really has to be the system to be functioning where, where uh, all kinds of people have influence and they're part of something and they help to create it and, uh, and, and continue it. So it's a very sophisticated form of social evolution and uh, I should say that I have my my thoughts have been stimulated by reading you know, the uh, the uh, the biologist uh, evolutionist who are like uh, E. A. Wilson and there's a whole uh, about well tons of them but some really fantastic analysis of where they are are, are saying that uh, for example they say things like uh, physics has some limited it has it's fantastic but there's eventual limitation to physics, it's a physical limitation, but uh, humans ha uh, have no limitation by definition, like mm -hmm. evolution could lead to more and more. And so, and he, he says, uh, evolution is relentlessly bottom up, is movement forward. So evolution, when you say what I'm talking here in some ways is about the, uh, the uh, I mean, if you separate uh, evolution around uh, uh, genes and, um, the genetic genetic uh, source, which was the main source for the until ten thousand years ago, and then you add to it uh, adaptation to the environment. Uh, the really exciting one is cultural ad, uh, evolution. Cultural mm -hmm. evolution is coming from learning from, and the culture gets better. And it's not just it is evolution. It's not just a couple of ideas. It's the quality of the society gets uh, more complex and better. If in our in our model. And if it gets better, it's 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 almost limitless. Mm. Which is such a, um, which is where the excitement comes from when people. Yeah. Meet, that's where the the kind of enthusiasm is. One last question on the systemness. You mentioned systemness activists. Tell us, mm -hmm. tell us more. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, I, I think that they're starting, um, and. Greta Thunberg, for example, you could take a lot of people that are uh, that have stepped to the plate, let's say, or whatever, and uh, they have seen things. And because they saw that the official system wasn't taking action, mm -hmm. that they have taken independent action and and had people to rally around them. So, so the whole start of 
of uh, we're better off today about climate and tackling climate change than if those people hadn't been active the last five, 10 years or more. So I think we need, um, we need activists to kickstart it, but I think uh, not everyone's going to be that kind of activist and that you have to make it possible for uh, action to take place uh, for regular systems that are, are going to be inbuilt action to that. And one of, the, one of my colleagues actually is uh, uh, Thomas Homer Dixon, his name is, he's a complexity theorist in uh, University of Waterloo in Canada. And he just wrote, he's written two or three books, but his work book he just wrote this year is um, called Commanding Hope. And he's a complexity evolutionist. So most of the book is why, this, why, the, why society is going to hell in a handbasket. His complexity analyst as a scientist shows that every which way. Uh, but then he said, well, what have we got left? And he said, we've got, we've got hope, but hope is kind of, uh, there's bad hope and there's good hope. And the good hope is where you think you have a chance. And I actually took, almost ended the paper like that. And I've added another piece to it now, which says we have, we've experienced um, learned helplessness. So that's been our experience. And we have to experience um, a learned uh, hopefulness. So that the hopefulness has to come from pieces of success that want us to do more. So that's where I see uh, the optimism now. I think that we are going to see examples where people are getting somewhere and that's going to rep represent hopefulness that's being learned by trying to, to do this. And, and one of the heroes actually emerging in this, I don't know whether you know her, I've just got to know her through this, um, is Mary, Marianne Mazzacato, who's the, uh, she's the economist uh, from, uh, originally from Italy and now at uh, University of London in London, England. And she wrote a book that I drew on, you saw the, the analysis, fantastic analysis of the austerity and way that's unfolded the last 40 years. Her book, her new book just came out just after I did, uh, I published this, I just got it two days ago. It's called Mission Economy. And, uh, and it's uh, in, in the book and what I was able to use of hers was to, to define and provide evidence about the, uh, the inbuilt austerity nature of the last 40 years. And she's got that really uh, well analyzed. And then her conclusion along with the other uh, um, uh, economists in the same realm right now is that getting a balanced budget is not, is not the point. The point is investing, even if you go into debt, into infrastructure that will actually create more wealth anyways, if you can invest and develop it that way. So, um, so this is a, uh, one possibility, but her, her new book, which is basically saying, let's do it now. I analyze the austerity and the austerity is supposed to lead to more wealth, but we haven't really set aside from spending more money. What are we going to do to create more prosperity? And uh, because uh, she uses the analogy to the moonshot, it appeals to me because I think of this Ford Wright drivers as a bit of a moonshot. It mm -hmm. is, uh, it's big, huge, it's, but the moonshot was big in, in its own frame. And that's the way, that's kind of the uh, comparison that we can possibly see here that there will be, that it, it's, it's changing the, uh, it's creating a new purpose for the role of education and schools in society. And that new purpose is to create a better society. 
that that's a strong message of hope, and your paper does end mm-hmm. with with a message of hope. And if I can pull one bit in particular to finish on, you you speak, you mentioned that young people in particular are the main source of future success, change makers on the move, you call them, and we have not nearly invested enough in young people. So if we just You've given us lots to work on, I think, as individuals, as educationalists, um, as uh, people part of the the wider system. But for those that tomorrow and going forward will be in the here and now in front of young people, how do we tap into that in the here and now? And how would you like us to invest more in young people? Yeah, what could I say just a couple of words about that? Because I think it's important to to get it right. Uh, What I don't mean is student voice and student agency in the sense we usually use those. Uh, In fact, it's a more interactive between adults and students. And we say about students that we haven't found a student young enough who who doesn't want to be a change agent, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds. So this is really uh, uh, that part. And then the other part is when we talk, if we talk about the rise of young students as part of the, uh, the solution, young people and adults working together to solve this. So the change here is that the students will be, uh, will be great change agents because we've seen it, but they'll be more powerful if adults and, and students are interacting together about this agenda, much more powerful. And they, uh, they, they, it's just, that part is really exciting because they will, uh, uh, when I, actually, when I think about it, I think of students as uh, young people as, a bundle of nerves and 50% wanting to change the world. So we can take those two fifties and make them into something more integrated with the adult community part of it. It could be very powerful. Absolutely. Michael, thanks so much for your contribution. It's it's been great to to reconnect with you um, and to get your your very latest thoughts on what we should be thinking about at this moment in time and and into the, the immediate future. Thank you. Could have gone. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your interest and good. It's like a, a fireside chat we have going. So uh, I hope there'll be another one and we'll be able to I do it so. at a time where we can point to the actual progress. Thank you for listening, folks. We really value you taking the time and space to join us. And we hope that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again, stay safe and take good care.